Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com. Today's recommendation is The Restoration of Rome, Barbarian Popes and Imperial Pretenders by Peter Heather. It's the story of Theodoric, Justinian, Charlemagne, and the popes who would all try to restore Rome and the creation of the Holy Roman Empire. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to listen to it today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 81b, Charlemagne and Leo. If you haven't heard part A yet, which uh, gave a summary of the events in Italy and Francia across the 8th century, then go check it out now. Today we're going to talk about the implications of Pope Leo crowning Charlemagne and answer your questions on the 8th century West. So let's look at what this decision meant for each side. Modern historians are confident that Charlemagne was not crowned by surprise or against his will. By 800 AD, there wasn't a lot which Charles Magnus could be forced to do. A Frankish historian reports that later, Charlemagne said he would never have entered the church that day if he'd known what was about to happen. But this is clearly not true. Charlemagne would continue to use the imperial title, he would agitate for the Byzantines to recognize it, and he passed it on to his son. Probably the reason that this regret was recorded was to fit Charlemagne into the grand tradition of Roman emperors refusing the honor when it was offered. In deference to the ancient republican virtues of the empire, many men had stage-managed rejections of the office, upon their coronation. They would deny their ambition for such a grave responsibility before their friends would insist that they were the only man fit for the job. Why did Charlemagne want to be crowned Roman Emperor, though? As we speculated in the previous episode, the massive expansion of the power and reach of the Frankish realm had caused something of an identity crisis of its own. This level of success surely intimated divine direction. The Franks were a special people, compared by their own intellectuals to the biblical kingdom of Israel. 
Charlemagne was clearly close to becoming God's vice-regent on earth. Such power was surely beyond a mere king of a German tribe. He was now worthy of assuming that long vacant office of emperor of the Romans. That was an understandable ideological conclusion to draw, but of course there already was an emperor of the Romans, albeit living very far away in Constantinople. Despite this distance, the hierarchy of office was well known. An emperor was more important than a king. The king might still need the pope's seal of approval to gain legitimacy, whereas the emperor was above all men. Charlemagne may have been able to do whatever he liked, but he still wanted the legal and psychological distinction of being hailed as emperor in order to put his reign in the proper historical and international context. Probably no one would have argued if Charlemagne had just announced that he was now august, but his court intellectuals knew that they would have no leg to stand on when Byzantine ambassadors pointed out their far more solid and far more ancient claims on real authority. This is why the attacks on Irene and her ecumenical council came when they did. Here was an opportunity to discredit Byzantine claims to empire and create a vacuum into which Charlemagne could legitimately step. The Pope's involvement sealed the deal. In the West, no one questioned the right of the man in Rome to be head of the church. With his involvement, the act would be as approved by God as any act could be. Now that he was emperor, though, not a lot changed for Charlemagne. The title established his authority on a grand scale, but it didn't alter the way he ran his empire. For example, his sons were given sub-kingdoms and were clearly meant to inherit a divided realm, as was the German custom. It's just that three of his four legitimate sons predeceased him, meaning he did pass the imperial title to his remaining son, Louis the Pious. It's not clear who would have inherited the title emperor if they'd all survived. But the title was just that, a title. It was a means to an end, not the end in itself. Down in Rome, Pope Leo doesn't seem to have had much of a choice in crowning Charlemagne. He needed the king's support to overcome his domestic political problems. If he refused him, then it's likely he would have been set aside and a new pope would have crowned Charles anyway. It's doubtful that the papacy really wanted a new emperor. The pope had stood up to the king of the Lombards, but an emperor could rival him as head of the Christian world. So in the aftermath of the ceremony, the PR department in Rome emphasised strongly Leo's role in the act of crowning. It was the Pope who had the power to bestow the crown of empire. This fit very much with the forged document, the donation of Constantine. Pope Sylvester had been given dominion over the Western Empire by Constantine. Now Leo was conferring that power upon Charlemagne. But what was given could surely be taken away. And Charlemagne should, of course, behave like Constantine did, subservient and generous to his spiritual better. 
Charles did indeed give to the Pope, but he clearly learned his lesson from this experience. He had got what he needed from Rome, and he wasn't going back there to seek their approval for anything else. When it was time to elevate his son Louis to the highest office of state, he crowned him himself. So what about the Byzantines? From their perspective, Leo's decision to crown Charlemagne was an act of rebellion against the empire. The reality that had been masked by silence for a century was now loud and clear. Rome was no longer part of the empire. Theophanes commented that Rome is in the hands of the Franks now. Some of these developments had already happened by 800, but from now on, the popes would no longer date documents with the Byzantine imperial year, nor would they mint coins with the emperor's face on them. They stopped maintaining native Greek speakers in the chancellery as the need to maintain correspondence with Constantinople diminished. Prayers were now said for the king of the Franks and his family, rather than for the emperor and his a formal relationship was still maintained. The Byzantines would go on seeing the Pope as an important figure within the Church. He would still be consulted on various ecclesiastical issues. But fundamentally, both sides now knew that Rome was not rejoining the Empire. With Frankish military power so intimately connected with the papacy, any moves in that direction would have been impossible. At this stage, Charlemagne's claim on the title Emperor of the Romans was only a minor irritation in Constantinople. It would have to be dealt with, and it will, within the narrative, but it wasn't a hugely pressing concern. More worrying was the fact that the Franks were physically impinging on Byzantine territory. The expansion into Italy, threatened Byzantium's holdings in the south, and the move toward Istria in the north endangered Venice and the few outposts in Dalmatia, still in imperial hands. Though they were a small number of islands and forts, they helped keep Byzantine shipping safe and resupplied on their diplomatic and trade voyages. As we shall see further into the narrative, the presence of an organised Christian kingdom on the edge of the Balkans was perceived as a threat. The Byzantines had actually become comfortable with the anarchy of the stateless peninsula to the west of their capital. The failure of the Avar siege had been confirmation that steppe empires were not likely to be a serious threat to Byzantium. And so leaving the Balkans to the sea of Slavs and ex-Romans was tolerable for now. The Bulgars were somewhere between an organised state and a steppe confederation. Their presence had stirred the Byzantines into action, as we've seen, but they still weren't viewed as an existential threat because they didn't have a civilization to rival Byzantium. The Franks, on the other hand, did, even if it was but a shadow of their own, as they condescendingly assumed it was, the appearance of the Franks in the Western Balkans would push the Byzantines on to invest more heavily in their project to re-Romanize the Balkans. The fact that Frankish churchmen would soon be competing for souls was to be a major course of the rivalry. 
by the mid-9th century, a Byzantine saying was recorded by a Frankish chronicler. The saying goes, If you have a Frank as your friend, then he is not your neighbour. It's pretty ironic for descendants of the Roman Empire to coin such a proverb, but nonetheless it captures their sense of discomfort with the expansion of Frankish power. And I think it's the fact of Frankish might, rather than the adoption of the imperial title, which was most important to the Byzantines. For 300 years they had lived comfortably in the knowledge that as bad as things got in the East, there was no one to match them in the West. Now that had changed. And over time, they will be forced to realise this and start looking over their shoulder at the successors of the Western Empire. Lots of your questions focused on Byzantine perspectives on the Franks and Italy during the 8th century. Listener RM wondered about whether the Byzantines were aware of the Arab attacks on southern Gaul or the deposition of the last Merovingian in favour of Pippin. And indeed, would they have wanted to respond to either situation militarily? Relations between the realm of the Franks and Byzantium were generally good, but everything took a long time. Official interactions were a rare thing, Embassies would physically have to travel to the court of the other in order to communicate in person. Neither side had representatives they trusted closer to the border. Uh, So when the Byzantines wanted to propose that Rotrude marry Constantine, they travelled to Aachen. And when the Franks wanted to discuss Irene and Charlemagne getting together, they went to the Bosphorus. Of course, both sides got regular updates on what the other side were up to through informal contacts. Clergymen often wrote to friends in faraway dioceses with information. Traders would bring news on their ships. Byzantine administrators working in Italy or the Adriatic coast would send information back to the capital, and so on. But almost none of this information was first-hand, and it all took so long to reach the east that by the time news of a major event reached the palace, it was far too late to do anything about it. So no, the Byzantines did not know that the Arabs were raiding southern Gaul until well after it had begun, and it was never serious enough that they would have thought much of it. Similarly, they greeted news of King Pippin's coronation with a shrug. The Pope's involvement in Frankish politics would have been noted, but the Byzantines seemed to have been pleased that the Franks were preserving Rome's independence from the Lombards. Following on from that, listener J asks whether the Byzantines still believed that the lands of the old Roman Empire were theirs, even as a legal fiction which is an interesting choice of words, because the donation of Constantine was precisely a legal fiction. The idea that the West was Roman land, which just happened to have fallen under the control of barbarians, lingered for some time, but once the collapse under Phocus and Heraclius happened, those ideas became irrelevant. And I don't just mean because the empire was too weak to consider Uh, heading west, I mean that the prevailing sense of Romanness began to change. This is, of course, tied up with iconoclasm and that sense of the Byzantines as a chosen people suffering for their sins. 
those ideas of who we are and what our destiny is could no longer really apply to men living in Britain under Saxon kings or a Spaniard living under Muslim rule. By 800, the Franks had been around for so long and had such an independent history that it would be hard to still really perceive them as squatters. Listener G asks in the same vein, did anyone in northern Italy or France think of themselves as Romans, as Byzantines, as it were? Again, I think the answer is no. There was an educated elite across Western Europe who learnt Latin and sometimes Greek, who were well aware of their common ancestry. But these were mostly clergymen, and they spent their lives in kingdoms with a German inheritance that were recognisably something different from the Roman Empire of old. And, of course, the longer time went on, the more alien the Byzantines might appear. Listener GW asks whether the loss of territory in Italy was particularly hurtful for the Byzantines, considering it was their ancient homeland. But he sort of answers the question himself when he adds, or was the centre of power, culture and religion so ensconced in Constantinople that Italian territory was regarded as no different from other places? Italy was understood to be the birthplace of empire. But I don't think it was remembered as the birthplace of Roman culture in the same way. As the Byzantines spoke Greek, they viewed the Latin-speaking West as a slightly foreign place, and their thoroughly Christian worldview meant Jerusalem was just as important a location as Rome in their own origin story. Therefore, it was easy to put Constantinople in the centre of their cultural history, fusing as it did two traditions, and therefore lose a sense that Italy itself was particularly special. Listener JM asks whether this was the point where the West started to deny Byzantine claims on the Roman legacy. I think that question may come from too modern a perspective. I mean, the Franks were certainly making a claim on that legacy, but at the same time they recognised Byzantium as the continuation of Roman power in the East. So they were not so much denying Byzantine Romanness as wanting a piece of it themselves. Listener G asks about the Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine view of it. But the Holy Roman Empire did not yet exist. Charlemagne remained head of the Frankish realm, but with an imperial title. An actual empire with the name of Rome would not come into existence until the mid-10th century. Listener S asks, how much more advanced were the Byzantines than their European counterparts? Was the population as a whole more literate? Was their knowledge of medicine, metallurgy and agriculture that much more advanced? Or has the difference of technical proficiency been exaggerated over the centuries? It's hard to be accurate for obvious reasons. No records of literacy exist, and it's hard to compare two such vast areas on such a metric. But a superficial comparison would suggest that reading and writing had generally survived better in Byzantium than in the West. Constantine V seems to have contributed personally to writing sermons defending his iconoclasm, while Charlemagne famously struggled to learn how to read. 
Constantinople maintained a bureaucracy throughout even the darkest times, and therefore the elite who lived near the Bosphorus continued to bring up their sons to be able to read and write. Over in Francia, it was far less necessary to be literate to be successful. It was more important to be a good warrior and a good manager of your various estates and retainers. In both East and West, it seems that literacy had dropped off significantly since Roman times. A life in the army, often a route to success and money, didn't require that officers be able to read. And the drop-off in long-distance trade meant that learning other languages might be less relevant. The Byzantines held the edge in terms of literacy, I would say, but it was far less pronounced than in the days of Justinian. In terms of scientific and other kinds of practical knowledge, I'm going to have to ask for your patience. I think it would be impossible to discuss technological developments on a century-by-century basis for various reasons and for lack of evidence. What I think is needed is a specific long episode dedicated to technology during the Byzantine era, and I'll definitely work on that, but it won't be coming out during this tour. It will take a lot of specialist research, and I don't think you'd appreciate me disappearing for weeks at a time right now. I'm going on a much-needed holiday in late October, and so I'm trying to get all of the the end-of-the-century work done before then. But trust me, an episode on Byzantine science will come, and any and all questions on that topic are being filed ready for that day. Having said that, one thing I will say here is that Constantine V sent a special gift to Pippin in 757, an organ. This was, of course, a large gift which would have suitably impressed its Frankish recipients, who we can assume uh, did not have anything like it at the time. Organ music was obviously far louder and more powerful than any instruments owned by the general public, and hence why it was used in the Hippodrome or around the palace or on Irene's tours of Thrace. I'm sure the Franks could have hired engineers to build one, but that specialist knowledge was no longer readily at hand in the West, but it had survived in the East, and uh, Byzantine diplomats were quick to use such mastery to try and impress. That's all from the West for now. We will be back for more questions later, but for now we're headed East, for the fall of the Umayyads, the rise of the Abbasids, and the fate of those former Roman Christians who Heraclius left behind. Finally, you all know about Audible.com and its hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, newspaper and magazine articles, and classic audio clips. If you're interested in checking out a book related to Byzantium for free, then how about The Restoration of Rome by Peter Heather? Here is a sample Uh, discussing Theodoric the Ostrogoth writing a letter to Anastasius right at the start of our podcast story about his right to rule Italy. The central plank of Roman state ideology was the claim that the empire existed because it was key to the divine plan for humankind. Theodoric's parallel claim that the divinity underpinned his own capacity to govern in a properly Roman manner amounted to a statement that he himself, together with the realm he governed, were just as legitimately Roman, that is, divinely ordained, as the Eastern Empire itself. 
As set up in this letter, Theodoric's Romanness was not indirectly acquired from the Eastern Empire, but directly from God. Who was this Gothic upstart making these extraordinary claims, and how much substance was there in this assertion of his own Romanness? The restoration of Rome is about the foundations of the actual Holy Roman Empire, and how Theodoric, Justinian, and Charlemagne played their parts in its creation. If you're interested in a free month-long trial of Audible service, and you live in the US or Canada, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.